A reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done no wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, and there are some of us who, uh, or some of you that I, I know I have not met, um, I am one of the pastors in the Christ Prez network uh, around town. Russ had mentioned uh, our Music Row uh, location that meets Sunday mornings at Scarrett Bennett near Vanderbilt. And uh, of course, you all are here, and Russ is your your leader, and uh, I am stationed at the old Hickory Boulevard location. And uh, every now and then, uh, we three uh, congregational pastors will give each other some relief uh, and and show up and and give the other an opportunity just to to take a week off from sermon prep and and uh, a chance to sit down during the sermon, which Russ is not choosing to do at this moment. Um, <laughs> But uh, it's great to be with you, and uh, one of the things we do together is we preach through the same series, we preach the same text, Russ writes the sermon for all of us, and we just say what Russ uh, tells us to say. Uh, That part's not true, but the rest of it is, and uh, today we're... um, we're going to be uh, talking about the, the man who is historically referred to as the thief on the cross. And um, uh, if you are considering Christianity, uh, one of the things that Jesus said is, you better count the cost before you, uh, before you sign up. Uh, Jesus says that in the world you're going to have trouble, and in fact, uh, the more tethered you are to me, Jesus would say, the more trouble you're going to have, not less. Uh, And uh, there are these uh, eight sayings that uh, Christians refer to as the Beatitudes. It's in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, these are are all sort of, if you're going to be a follower of Christ in the world, these are the things that are going to be characteristic of you. And the last two say something pretty strange and pretty counterintuitive. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, when people are violent against you because of your connection to Jesus Christ. And when that happens, pray for them. Wish them well. Uh, For these sorts of things happened to the prophets uh, before you, and they're happening to me, and and so they're going to happen to you as well. And so, so... In our part of the world, that sort of violence tends to come in the form more of character assassination than it does 
actual assassination, uh, crit uh, criticism and, and so on, especially in the, the digital age. And I've actually got a couple of older models that, uh, they're not actually models, but, but, but older sort of examples of how to handle opposition, things like opposition and, and criticism, especially unfair criticism, in a healthy, life-giving, and, and Christ-centered way. And one of them is a man named Tim Keller, and he is uh, the founder of a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And uh, Tim wrote an essay uh, a few years ago, uh, and it, it, it's especially targeted to younger ministers, and uh, it, it's basically, you know, how to handle criticism of your views. And in that, uh, in that essay, Tim talks about how, uh, and I paraphrase, uh, he is pilloried or he is attacked or opposed more for views that he doesn't have than he is for views that he does. And he says, when that happens to you, young ministers... Don't fall into a spirit of smugness. Don't say of the person that's criticizing you, oh, they're pathetic. Don't hold them in contempt in your heart. Instead, figure out a way to pray for them because that's what Jesus said. Figure out a way to, to ask God for their flourishing because that's what Jesus did. And while you're at it, he says, because you're a sinner, and Jesus is not, um, but because you are, Maybe even look for a kernel of something that might be true in the body of the criticism so you'll have something to take to Jesus. It'll, it'll further your intimacy with Christ and it'll give you something else to repent of and declare your need for the gospel over. Okay? So another one is a man named Bob Goff. He lives in San Diego. He's on the, 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 uh, the West Coast. And he is regularly, Bob is, trolled on Twitter. Now, if you're under 40, you don't know what that means. Or I'm sorry, if you're over 40, you don't know what that means. If you're under 40, you do. Being trolled on Twitter is like getting hate mail in, in you know, a couple hundred uh, uh, characters, like, like a very short hate mail letter, but public so everybody can see it. And so he gets trolled on a, on a pretty regular basis, happens to influential people like him. Uh, and uh, he, he says, when that happens to me, uh, I will try to learn something about the critic. I will go to their, you know, Twitter feed, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to, you know, look through the things that are on their, their feed and, and try to discern if there's a wound or, or, or a struggle in their life, and then I will pray for them. And then, if I can find their address, I will mail them a cake pop. Uh, so, so Bob will mail them a cake pop, and he says, if they continue to troll me, I will hit the block button, and I'll say, see ya. Okay, but, but both of these models are, are, are examples or pictures of what we call taking the high road. Rather than, you know, you know, striking back, you know, like Bono said, you know, trying to defeat the monster by becoming the monster. Uh, you know, violence with violence, you know, try to win at the Darwinian game with, with Darwinian methods. You know, the strong eat the weak and, the, you know, the, the powerful overcome those less powerful than they... Today's encounter, Jesus gives a higher level even and new meaning of what it means to take the high road as he is bleeding out on the cross next to a couple of others who are adjacent to him also bleeding out on their crosses. And uh, I'll go through them one by one, the three dying men on the cross, the angry cynic, the new believer, and then the merciful savior. So let's start with the angry cynic. So these three are all nailed up together on wooden beams uh, called a cross. 
they're bleeding out, and there are three things that are happening here that, that, that cause uh, pain and angst and, and all kinds of sort of internal tornado experiences for, for the people who are hanging there. The first is injustice. They are all being, in all likelihood, unfairly and unjustly uh, executed uh, by the Roman state. Now, now, a little bit of history, Roman was an, Rome was an oppressive regime. Uh, there was tyrannical leadership, and typically people who were put to death in this way, they were put to death in this way because somehow and some way along, where along the way they had spoken truth to power. They had gotten up in courage and, and, and said something offensive to, to, to an oppressive state. They had dared to speak truth to power. The, the word that's actually used to describe these two uh, other you know, adjacent hangers on their crosses uh, in, in, in the other Gospels where the, the account is told, the, the word that's used there uh, is often translated something equivalent to freedom fighters. You know, think of William Wallace in, in Braveheart, for example, or think of William Wilberforce, uh, who stood up to the British Parliament and Crown uh, in, uh, you know, in opposition to uh, the slave trade. Or think of Oscar Schindler, who, who stood up to the Germans uh, and the Nazi regime uh, by providing sanctuary for for Jewish men and women and children, or, or think of, of King, who, who stood up against white supremacy and, and white supremacists in the United States, even. Uh, and and uh, there's also biblical precedent. Moses spoke tr- truth to power in Egypt. He said to, to Pharaoh, you, you have to let my people go. Uh, you've got Daniel, who stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and said, we only have one God, and it's not you. I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to worship you. You can throw me in a lion's den if you want. You can toss me in a fiery furnace if you want, but I am not going to worship you. And throw him in a lion's den, Nebuchadnezzar did. And the prophets are, are, are constantly, you know, declaring, you know, these, these, um, you know, these, these woes, these, these sort of miserable statements toward unjust political systems especially. They're speaking truth to power everywhere. And so, so there's injustice here, and, and the injustice is perpetrated through injury. Again, they're, they're, they're hanging on a cross. This was specifically the most humiliating, shameful, and painful way to, to die. And then they added insult to the injury. They humiliated them. It says that they stripped their clothes off, particularly Jesus. They stripped his clothes off of him. They scoffed. They mocked. They, they put sour wine or, or vinegar in his mouth while he was up there. Uh, some of the commentaries say that there, there are hints of anti-Semitism here, racism, uh, where you've got, you've got Romans uh, you know, putting a sign up over Jesus saying, King of the Jews, uh, which is sort of mocking him because if he was really a king, then he could bring himself down off the cross, Right? And of the Jews, that little insignificant uh, group of nobodies, uh, you know, here in Rome is sort of what they were thought about, uh, thought of as, you know, sort of this oppressed minority. And so this man, for maybe understandable reasons, um, there's a cynicism that develops in him at some point along the way, you know, this cynic on death row, and, and he essentially says to Jesus, none of us belong up here. You know, I don't, he doesn't. All three of us know it. And so if you are really who you say you are, the Savior of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, if you are really who you say you are, the Messiah that we've been anticipating for all these centuries, this is your perfect opportunity to prove it. Save yourself. Save us. 
if you're who you say you are. Free the innocent, punish the guilty, make everything right with the world, like Messiah is supposed to do. Now, for centuries, the Jewish vision of what the coming Messiah uh, would look like was that, that he would be a warrior, a strong man who would defeat violence with more violence. And they had in their memory, no doubt, uh, what we call the imprecatory prayers of the Old Testament. They're there in some of the prophets. They're there in the Psalms. Imprecatory prayers are negative prayers, are prayers of judgment against the enemies. Here are a few excerpts just taken you know, out verbatim from, from the English translation that I use. May the Lord see and avenge. Babylon, blessed shall he be who takes your infants and dashes them against the rock. Lord, take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't blot out their sin from your sight. Deal with them in anger. Let me see your vengeance upon them. Give me a front row seat to their destruction. It's like this gladiator mindset, which was pretty commonplace in the Roman context. But, but one thing that they, 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 they had, and, 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 and I think one, one of the things of the cynic on the cross is, is demonstrating subtly at least, is an amnesia about the messianic strategy that was laid out for them in one of their prophets, Isaiah in particular, where Isaiah very explicitly and very clearly says that the Messiah, when he comes, will defeat violence, not with violence, but he will defeat violence as a victim thereof. That's how he's going to win the world. And it, you know, as, as Oscar Schindler once said, this is how true power is demonstrated. True power is when you have every justification and all the strength available at your fingertips to destroy your enemy, and you don't. That's what true power is, according to Schindler and according to Scripture. Isaiah 53 describes the coming Messiah as the suffering servant, fulfilled in Jesus, who will be pierced for our transgressions, he'll be crushed for our iniquities, the punishment or the vengeance that will bring us peace with God will be laid upon him. He'll be numbered with the transgressors, which is a direct you know, prophecy to, to the text that we're, we're looking at today. By his stripes, by his wounds, we're healed. And so there's this proper posture maybe that Jesus is, is hinting at when, when he answers the cynic with a non-answer and instead looks over to, to the other guy and, and treats him with the tenderness that he does, which I'll get to in a second. But the proper posture when being mistreated is twofold. Be angry and don't sin in your anger. In other words, you don't stuff your anger and pretend that this kind of stuff isn't injurious, pretend that it doesn't feel like betrayal, pretend like it doesn't hurt, be angry. That's a legitimate emotion that God's given you. And sin not. In other words, your posture toward those who position themselves as your enemy is not to strike back in violence and to add to the cycle of violence, but to forgive them. 
to absorb instead of retaliate. While also, you know, putting in all the, the protective measures, you know, you don't give yourself away or entrust yourself to somebody who's got a history of a, being a perpetrator. If you're the Jews, you hide from Hitler, you know, and so on. Psalm 139, there's a little bit of a hint to this, maybe a hint to what Jesus is going to do on the cross here. Where Psalm 139, King David prays, I loathe, I hate the enemies with a complete hatred. And then the very next verse, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe that's a hint that maybe we've gotten it wrong. Maybe our prayers of imprecation are not complete. Because what we are praying for is for the enemy to be destroyed. And what, what Messiah is going to set the world up for is for the Messiah to be destroyed in order to rescue the enemy. And so we get Jesus' full interpretation. You have heard it said, but I say to you, throughout the Sermon on the Mount... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Ouch. One area where the cynic misses the mark is that his premise is all wrong. He's got this if-then thing going on in his view of the world. If you are God, then you will do this. But because you're not doing this, then you must not be God. Or at least you're not the God for me. He's placing, he's doing what we could call placing conditions on his worship. If you give relief for us and retribution toward them, then I will consider you worthy to follow. So save yourself and save us and give them what they've got coming to them. And, And even though his circumstances are very difficult. And this is really where what's inside of us is revealed. When we're put in hot water like a tea bag, you don't really know if it's good tea or bad tea in that dry tea bag, but when you put it in hot water, then all of a sudden it's revealed what's actually in there. And so he's in hot water, and that's where the truth comes out. He wants God as a means, not as an end. He wants a personal assistant who will function as a guarantor of his version of the good life. That's what he wants out of God. Taking up a cross is stupid. Laying down your life is stupid. I want my dreams, and I want them now, and if you don't give them, then you're not God, or you're at least not the kind of God that I want. And here am I. Just seven hours ago, in the middle of the night, so a little bit of self-disclosure, as I'm getting ready to preach this, right? I've got a broken brain, uh, so I'm, I'm really thankful for prayers like the one uh, that was vocational prayers, like the one that we pray today. I have a broken brain, and Russ knows this. I do not sleep uh, very well, and I, I, sometimes it's fair to say I just don't sleep. Um, for the last Uh, Five days, I have averaged in each 24-hour period two and a half hours of sleep. Uh, I have a brain. It's like those, uh, and I'm not anxious. I'm not. I'm not like worried about a bunch of stuff. It's just my mind will not shut down. Down. It's like it's like when you're trying to restart your computer, but your computer won't restart. It just kind of gives you that little rainbowy thing. 
uh, or that hourglass, um, and, and, you know, and, 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 but, it, but it doesn't do what you tell it. It just doesn't shut down, and, and if, you, if you're a Mac user, you've got to hold down the power button, and like, you've got to force it like, to die, right? Uh, and then and only then will it shut down, right? So, so my brain is, not, is something that will not shut down when I tell it to. And, uh, and so I'm laying down in the middle of the night last night, you know, downstairs on my familiar middle-of-the-night couch, and my wife comes down, uh, you know, she knows that I'm up, and she's teary. She's one of the most empathetic people you'll ever meet, and she starts praying over me. And as she's praying over me, I just keep my eyes open, and I'm just looking at the ceiling. And when she says, hey, I want to respect her so I don't say much until she's done, and then I look over and say, God doesn't want me to sleep. He doesn't. It's clear. I've been praying, praying for this for a year and a half. I'm done. I'm not praying for this anymore. Uh, I've, I've, I've hired some of the best medical professionals on this stuff in the world, and nothing is helping. Nothing. What I was really saying in my heart, though, it could be that God doesn't want me to sleep. Maybe this is the thorn in the flesh, you know, similar to what Paul talked about, uh, you know, so that I might know Christ better. But what I was really feeling in my heart was that God does not care. He doesn't. Seven hours ago. Where am I in this picture here? I think I'm with the new believer and not with the cynic. Because even the new believer had a cynical moment. Because if you look at the parallel texts, you'll see that the new believer was mocking Jesus alongside the other guy just a few minutes before. And for whatever reason, Luke leaves that detail out of his account. But in the other accounts, they were both mocking Jesus. But when he sort of comes to himself and recognizes all I have in this moment is Christ, and I think all I need in this moment is Christ, this man does not ask for relief like the other man does. And he does not ask to be spared from his pain or from his injury or from even death, which it's certainly legitimate to ask for those things. Like, don't, don't look at this as descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not a command. It's a description of what's going on that shows his priorities. What he does ask for is to be remembered. He's got this future orientation, and he says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. But then he turns over to the other guy, to the cynic, and he says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation... And we indeed are under a just condemnation, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. What deeds is he talking about? I do not think he's saying that Rome is completely just for giving us the death penalty. You know, that the parallel text and the language used in the parallel text point to the opposite, that they're actually being crucified for being good men, not for being bad men. And so what could be, he be after? He, he can only be after one other thing. The wages of sin is death. We are sinful men. We deserve to die. He is not a sinful man. He does not deserve to die. Who do you think you are? You know, his admission of guilt is not an admission of civic guilt before Rome, but of cosmic guilt before God. You know, the cynic says, 
If you take my pain away from me, then I will follow you. The, the believer says, I will even live with pain if necessary to follow you. See the difference? It's just a hierarchy of loves we're talking about. You know, one of the commentaries said that the, 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 the guy who's the cynic on the cross, he's more concerned about saving his skin than he is about saving his soul. But, but the, the believer on the cross is more concerned about saving his soul than he is about saving his, his skin. And the reason is that to, 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 to forfeit Jesus in order to get your version of the good life is hell. But to forfeit your version of the good life in order to have Jesus and to walk with Jesus, that's actually paradise. Do you notice he speaks present tense, today you'll be with me. You're with me. If you're with me, you are in paradise. The, the emphasis isn't on the paradise as much as it is on the with me. Because there is no paradise except for those that are with me. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. You know, Jesus is not a means for this man. Jesus is the end. And it makes, it makes every difference for him. Jesus is his emotional non-negotiable. He can, he, can, he can do without everything else as long as he has Jesus, whereas the other guy can do without Jesus as long as he has everything else that he wants, you know, his, his comfort, his you know, reestablishment of, of, of the life that, that, that he thinks he wants and deserves. You know, before uh, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones became a preacher, he was a very successful doctor. And, you know, he, he ran in elite circles and made a lot of money. And, and uh, his first assignment as a, as a preacher was at this uh, small blue-collar church on the shores of Wales. He took a 90% salary cut uh, to take that position. And as he, as he took this new position, he was also, uh, you know, socially written off by his former community of elites and blue bloods and such. And... Uh, it wrote him off because they, they deemed him a religious fanatic. Why would you make this pivot? Um, why would you commit career suicide? Why would you be such a fool? You're, you're being a fanatic. And sometime later, a reporter uh, asked in an interview of, of, of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, was it worth it? And he says, let me get something straight. I gave up nothing. And I gained everything. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Then we've got the merciful Savior. Did you notice here that there is not a hint of vitriol with Jesus? You know, about the crowds who are either shouting crucify or doing the crucifying, about the crowds, Jesus turns to his father and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're, they're doing. Their, their sin is a sin of evil, but it's also a sin of ignorance, and it's a sin of ignorance that drives the sin of evil. There's a need, there's something broken there, there's a broken brain, broken soul beneath very damaging, violent, broken behaviors. It's all enmeshed and intertwined. But here we have Jesus loving his enemies. 
He doesn't just tell us. He becomes the demonstration, and we become among the first enemies that he loves if we identify with this new believer on the cross who just got finished insulting Jesus a few minutes ago and now is asking to be remembered in the future kingdom. The cynic is unmoved by Jesus' prayerful gesture on behalf of his persecutors. The believer begs mercy and forgiveness, and it is granted to him. And it's granted to him immediately. There's no penance he has to do. There's no hole he has to dig himself out of. There's no purgatory that he has to endure. None of it. Just just straight up, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's it. Can I pay you something for it? Nope. Free of charge. Without money. So I want to close with these three words today. You know, there's zero waiting period. So you think of your most recent, most shameful thought, the most recent, most shameful thing that you've said or done. Sit in this for a second. Jesus will never hold that against you. He's not holding it against you now. He's not holding Even if you're angry at me right now for saying these things, Jesus is not holding it against you if you're with him. He gives space gives room for wrestling and grappling. He does. Maybe that's why all those imprecations are there in the Psalms. I don't know. You know, quite regularly, about once a year, I ask my wife if she thinks I'm a fraud. Do you think I belong in the pulpit preaching the gospel? Do you think I'm consistent? Do you think I live consistently with what I preach? And she says, well, no. <laughs> she says, who does? Who does? Jesus. That's about it. I ask my wife quite regularly if I'm a fraud, you know, should I go into vinyl repair? You know, vinyl's back. Um, and, and, you know, it could be a really good career. And she just repeats to me what Jack Miller taught us years and years ago. Cheer up because you're worse than you think. And God is infinitely more gracious than you ever dared to hope. Today. Today. There's no waiting period. You know, there's no green room you have to sit in uh, you know, before you get out onto the stage with Christ. With me. You know, there's something to consider here. Um, you know, Princeton scholar Charles Hodge has this beautiful um, you know, sort of unpacking of these concepts. And he says, if you are in court and you are a defendant, if you are the accused, what do you look like in the eyes of the judge and the jury and the court? What do you look like? And Hodge's answer was, you look just like your attorney. If your attorney is good, you look good. If your attorney is bad, you look bad. If your attorney wins, you win. If your attorney loses, you lose. You are lost in your advocate, Hodge says. The minute you become a Christian, you don't just get your sins washed away in some general way and now you're on your own. You are with Him. And you look like Him at all times before the judge. And he looks like you. That's the exchange. That's what he was willing to do. Father, forgive. In crying out, Father, forgive them. 
it, it, it by necessity, because God is both love and justice simultaneously together. He's both forgiveness and condemnation. To, to be able to say, Father, forgive them, he had to also soon say, my God, the only time Jesus didn't refer to him as Father, why have you forsaken me? You see? So as you come to this table and you get the opportunity in a moment to see and to touch and to smell your defender, your advocate, who is delicious and lovely and self donating. You're going to get a taste of paradise. Whatever you're going through right now, you could be an insomniac like me. You could be dealing with, you know, all the things that we need to pray for mental health professionals for. You could be dealing with all kinds of different stuff, things that you regret and so on. This is your opportunity to come and taste and see that he's not only good, but he's for you. And then this word paradise, you know, technically this is the temporary holding place uh, for the soul after we die. And, and, and we're there until the resurrection, which we'll talk about on Easter. That's coming up. We don't want to do too much Easter during Lent. But, 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 but uh, you know, paradise is this place where the soul is held uh, before the body is risen. And then when the body is risen, the soul reunites with a perfected, everlasting body. Okay? Um, and, and, and if, you, if you read the Septuagint, which is the, the early Greek translation of the, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll see that, that paradise and the Garden of Eden are used interchangeably uh, in the word, wording that is used. What this suggests is the worst day in paradise is going, the worst day in paradise with Jesus is going to make the best day here and now without Jesus seem like utter and complete devastation and misery. And the worst day or the worst season that we ever may experience is, is only going to be as a nightmare that we've woken up from. And you remember, when you, when, you, when you have a nightmare and you wake up from it, you enjoy and delight in and cherish and, and have gratitude for whatever it is that you lost in the nightmare that you got back than you, you, than you ever would without having had the nightmare. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis says, you know, heaven's going to work backwards and turn even our agony into a glory. And so it turns out that if you've got the, you know, sort of the posture of, this, the, of the second man, where maybe five minutes ago you cursed him in your heart and insulted him and blasphemed him, and yet here you are now at his table saying, Lord, will you remember me? The answer is Yes. You know, because, you know, to borrow a, a way of using words from Lewis, if you aim at Jesus, you will get the good life thrown in eventually. But if you aim at the good life, you'll get neither. And so let's aim at Jesus, shall we?